Have you ever prayed for something but really didn't expect God to answer? Was the situation hopeless? If so, stay tuned for the Bible Study Hour and hear the story of Peter's hopeless case. Personally imprisoned by the king and heavily guarded, Peter had no chance. Or did he? You'll be encouraged by God's deliverance. You're listening to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet program with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. Persecution breaks out again as King Herod arrested and executed James, and then went after Peter. They threw Peter in prison and chained him to guards and set a close watch on him. Peter was doomed. Yet it was not God's will for Peter to die. God sent a deliverance that the Christians praying couldn't believe. Open your Bible to Acts chapter 9 and let's listen together to Dr. Boyce. Tonight we're studying the twelfth chapter of the book of Acts, but I want to begin by directing you to the very last words of chapter 11. You notice at the end of chapter 11 the two names, Barnabas and Saul, and then I direct you to the end of chapter 12, verse 25, where you read again, Barnabas and Saul, and then chapter 13, verse 2, Barnabas and Saul. Repetition of those names is certainly meant to indicate that here we are passing to a new phase of the story of the expansion of the early church. You recall back the very beginning where the Lord gave the version of the Great Commission that we have in Acts, there was suggested for us a three-part outline of the book. Because the disciples were to be witnesses, so said the Lord in Jerusalem, that's part one, then in Judea and Samaria, that's part two, and then thirdly, to the ends of the earth, that's part three. Saul and Barnabas are going to be the agents of this great outward expansion of Christianity throughout the Gentile world. And that story is going to begin to be told in chapter 13. You would think when you come to the end of chapter 11 that you're all ready for it, because here we have been told of the expansion of the gospel into the Gentile community at Caesarea through God's great intervention in the life of Peter and Cornelius. And then we've been told of the founding and development of training of that great missionary church in Antioch from which Paul and Barnabas are going to be sent. In a certain sense, chapter 13 follows immediately in the development of this book on chapter 11. Yet between 11 and 13, there is this great story that we have in chapter 12. It concerns Peter. This is the end of the first half of the book, or as you could say, the end of the first two sections. And it's also, to a certain extent, the end of what is told us of the ministry of Peter. And here's the situation in Jerusalem, and it's not forgotten. And Luke tells us here in a very interesting way, this incident that wraps up this portion. Now, it concerns a new period of persecution. It's the way it begins. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. Apparently, there had been a period of relatively little persecution, at least since the earlier one that took place following the death of Stephen, the first martyr. You recall that 
There was a persecution then, and it is as a result of that persecution that the believers began to scatter throughout Judea and Samaria. So you see, at the end of the first phase, at the end of the preaching of the gospel in Jerusalem, there was a persecution, and that caused the believers to be scattered. And so phase two began. And here, you see, at the end of phase two, there is another persecution, and it's undoubtedly intended by Luke. We're supposed to understand that, and it happened that way historically, that at this point now, the gospel begins to spread even further. You see, no matter how intently the church is persecuted, the result is always the expansion of the faith. And that is exactly what happens here as a result of the persecution initiated by Herod. Why do you suppose this came about again now at this particular time? I think it can be said, probably there's no reason to doubt it, that it has to do with this ministry to the Gentiles. That's what the issue was at the time of the persecution at Stephen's death, too. You recall from our study of Stephen's great speech before the Sanhedrin that he emphasized in a subtle but very clear way that God had always dealt with the Gentiles. God had always included Gentiles. He was not a God of just one nation. And it is at that period when the real strict Jews of the time didn't want to hear it that the persecution burned out. Probably the same thing is true here as well. The gospel has just expanded to Antioch and to Caesarea. Gentiles are now in the church, and the Jewish community, which seems for a time was tolerant of the Christians as long as they acted as a Jewish sect and did all the right Jewish things. This group was tolerant of them for a time, but now when it began to be clear that this was going to be a religion that embraced Gentiles on equal footing with Jews in such a way that they didn't have to become Jews first in order to be saved. Well, then there was great hostility and great restlessness, and so the persecution breaks out again. We're told that Herod arrested James and had him executed. James was one of the most prominent three, Peter, James, and John. We find them again and again in that order in the Gospels obviously particularly close to the Lord when he was praying just before his arrest and crucifixion. When he went away, apart from the others, he took Peter, James, and John with him, and they appear in that aspect and other stories also. Well, now here's the first of them to die. Apparently, Herod had done this somewhat as a test. This Herod, Herod Agrippa I, was very anxious to please the Jews, and he was very popular with them, and he thought, well, now if the Jewish population is against this new movement, this sect of the Christians, well, then I'll just move against them and see how it goes. And so he arrested James, executed them. I suppose he waited at that point. He stepped back to see what the reaction would be. We're told what it was. It pleased them. Pleased them. And verse 3 says, when he saw that it pleased them, well, then he thought, I'll just deal with the next one. So he arrested Peter, and he was undoubtedly planning to have Peter killed also. It was the time of the Passover. He didn't want to break any of the careful rules of the Jews that surrounded those days in order that the days might be kept holy. 
And so instead of bringing Peter to trial and executing him right away, put him into prison, intending, as it says, to bring him out afterwards in a season when you could do this sort of thing, have the trial and have him executed. And so Peter was put in prison and he was given into the hands of these guards. It's hard to imagine Peter being as dangerous as all this, but the way the situation is described, being handed over to a squad of four soldiers, two of them chained to him, one on the right, one on the left, two of them outside the door of the prison, keep watch. Goodness, it sounded like Peter was public enemy number one, and in a certain sense he was. It's interesting. We think back to the time of Christ and his arrest, how there was a choice presented by Pilate to the people. Would they have Jesus to be released, or would they have Barabbas to be released? And you know what they said. They said they'd have Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a zealot. He was one who was out to overthrow the Romans. He was a murderer. We're told all sorts of bad things about him. You'd think, why, a person like that was public enemy number one. Keep him in jail where he belongs. Release Jesus. Jesus just went about doing good. Oh, no, it's not the way a natural man thinks. You see, the people of the day would rather have a murderer released to them than this Jesus who did no evil but went around turning things upside down by preaching the truth, preaching and doing good. That's the same way here, you see. They considered Peter, who had done nothing but preach the truth about Jesus, how men and women could be saved through faith in him, that he died for them and he rose again. God raised him with power, and that power could be evident in human life. That's all Peter had done. He was just a follower of Jesus. But you see, they thought of him as an enemy. He was upsetting things. He was disrupting the order. And so here is Peter in the prison, chained to soldiers, soldiers outside guarding him, and we're told that Herod intends to bring him out after the Passover and have him killed. What is Peter's reaction during all of this? Well, a little later on in his life, when he comes to write his first letter in the fifth chapter, verse 7, he's going to advise those to whom he writes to cast all the care upon God. Casting all your care upon him, says Peter, because he cares for you. Well, the man who preached that sermon later is a man who practiced it early, because here he is in the prison on what, if Herod had his way, would be his last night upon earth, sleeping, sleeping. There's a man who knew what it was to rest in the Lord, to cast all his care upon the Lord, and that's the position in which we find him. Now, all of that, of course, is to set up the condition for the story because the story is the story of Peter's deliverance and how that was received by those who had been praying that he might be delivered. Peter was in prison, sleeping, and suddenly the Lord sends his angel to bring Peter out. Peter is sleeping so soundly. There are humorous elements in this. Peter is sleeping so soundly that the angel has to poke him in the side to get him awake. I guess Peter was one of those heavy sleepers, and I detect that that's what's involved here. The angel is poking Peter. You know, Peter, come on, time to get up. Peter, we're getting out of here. Peter, come on, Peter, wake up, that sort of thing. And and finally, Peter does. Apparently, he's still groggy because he thinks he's in a having a vision or he's in a dream. He doesn't really come to himself until he gets outside of the prison on the street. He's all alone. I guess it's cool at night, and the air kind of takes the grogginess out of Peter's head. But at any rate, that's what happens. The angel comes, gets him up, and they make their way out past the guards who are themselves sleeping. All the chains have fallen off, and the doors are opening, and finally they get to the outside door, and Peter's wondering how in the world they're going to get through that when it just swings open by itself. And Peter walks out, and 
And there he is out in the street of the city. An angel leaves him and he comes to and he realizes what it is that God has done. It's a great miracle, you see. It's something that has happened on other occasions. Sometimes you hear things like this in missionary stories, and I'm inclined to believe them. There's a story of a a great Indian evangelist, Sundar Singh, who tells a story almost exactly like this from a time that he was witnessing in Nepal. He had been forbidden to preach by the Lama, the priest of a particular city, went on preaching, and so he was arrested, and they put him in a well, a dry well with a lid on the top, where they put prisoners, and he was put there to die. They weren't going to feed him. They just stuck him down there. They put on the lid, and they locked it. And there he was. He was down there with the bones of people who had died and who had decayed, and only the bones were left, people who had been imprisoned before him. While he was there praying, he suddenly heard a noise. He looked up, and somebody was releasing the lid of this particular well or cistern. And while he was looking up, a rope was lowered, rope had a loop in the end, and he put his foot in it and clung to the rope. He couldn't climb up the rope because he'd hurt his arm when they had thrown him into the well, and he was drawn up out of it. And then when he was up on the top, he looked around to see who it was that was pulling him out, and there was nobody there. Now, that could all be perfectly natural up to that point. You could understand how somebody would rescue him and then quickly run away so they wouldn't be detected. At any rate, he looked around and he saw that the cover was back on the cistern. And furthermore, it was locked again. So whoever did that, if it was a person, certainly did it quickly. He managed to get the lid back on and lock it and all of that. Well, he didn't think a great deal about it, but he went back into the city and was preaching. He was there the next day when word got to the priest, the lama, that he was preaching and he was arrested and brought in before the man. And he was supposed to give a testimony. He did. He explained how he had been delivered from the cistern. Well, naturally, they thought that a person had done it, so they went to search to see where the key was to find out who might have gotten it. When they searched for the key, they found that the key was on the belt of the lama. He was uh, the one who had been keeping the key all that time. And Sundar Singh thinks that God sent his angel to deliver him, and he may well have. At any rate, that is what happened in the case of Peter as he was delivered. I do want to say, however, when we think of this deliverance, the first phase of this story, that there are some lessons that we need to learn from it, lest we think that we have a right to this kind of deliverance in every case ourselves. First of all, I want you to notice that it came at the last possible moment. You see, Peter had been arrested for some time. He'd been kept during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was a week long, preceding the Passover. And it was only the night before he was to be brought to trial that the angel came. A lot of us expect deliverance, but we expect it when we want it. We're not willing to wait. It's often the case that God waits to the very last minute before he intervenes to do something for us. I've often found that that's the case in trying to know the will of God. We would kind of like to know the will of God in a special area much in advance. We think we would do better if we could know what God was going to do and plan it. I find that very often God doesn't reveal that to us. So what we would call almost the last minute. He lets us wait, and often, I'm sure, with very good purpose, because he wants us to be anxious to do his will in advance, whatever it may be. So that's one lesson we learn from it. The second lesson is that we can't help but contrast the deliverance of Peter with the non-deliverance of James. They were both prominent apostles, but Peter was delivered and James was executed. We look at that and we say, well, why should that be? 
And it's interesting that the story doesn't tell us why that should be. It doesn't tell us why Peter was spared. You say, well, certainly there was more for Peter to do, no doubt. I don't doubt that at all. But we're not told about what Peter did. No more stories here in the book of Acts, so we could point to that and say, ah, yes, God spared Peter so he could do so-and-so. The Bible is just silent to that point. It's a reminder that God is sovereign. He's sovereign in our lives, and God will do what he'll do. He chooses one to glorify him by his or her life. He chooses another to glorify him by his or her death. God is the Lord, you see, and it's not for us to make that determination. That's a lesson. And then thirdly, there is this lesson. It's a little bit of a case of spiritualizing upon it, and I want to make that clear. It's not what's taught here, but it is an illustration, isn't it, of the way you and I are delivered from the bondage of sin. Peter's case was hopeless, humanly speaking, surrounded by guards, chained in the prison, dark, sleep. His picture, that describes us in sin, chained by sin, unable to escape darkened, even asleep, drugged almost, in our case, to our insensitivity, until God sends his Holy Spirit to break those shackles and set us free and lead us out and give us a new life and ministry. I am sure that it was this scene particularly, this story particularly, that was in Wesley's mind when he wrote that great hymn that has in it the verse, long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. I'm sure that's what Wesley was thinking of, and thinking of it rightly, because this is a picture of what God does with us in salvation. But now, in a sense, all of that is a prelude to what happens at this point. Because here is Peter now out on the streets of the city in the middle of the night, having been arrested but delivered, knowing he has to leave the city because, of course, those who arrested him before will certainly arrest him again, and yet unwilling to depart without any kind of explanation, and therefore determining in his heart to go and seek out the house of his friends in order that they might know of his deliverance. Now, Peter didn't know that they were praying. He only knew that the house where everybody met and where you'd go if you wanted to pass some good news on was the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark. She must have had a large home where they would gather. It's probably where they were in the upper room at the time of Pentecost. At any rate, Peter decided to go there. Now, he didn't know they were praying, though we do, because earlier in verse 5, before we're told of his deliverance, in order that we might understand, you see, that it was a deliverance which God gave in response to the prayer of the Christians, we read, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Peter goes to this house now, and they're praying. And what we have here is a great lesson about the importance of prayer. Sometimes people say, people who haven't lived with the Lord a long time, or perhaps haven't studied Scripture very carefully about this matter of prayer, well, why should we pray anyway? Because after all, if God is sovereign, and you've just said he is, God will do what God will do. God wants to save John Smith. God will save John Smith. I don't have to pray that John Smith will be saved to get him saved. That's God's business. God will do it. Some people say, well, God's omniscient. He knows what I need. I don't have to bring my needs to him. 
He cares for me. Obviously, he wants to take care of me. Why should I even bother to pray after all? Well, that's a good question, but it also has a good answer. And the answer is simply that although God is sovereign and does things in his own sovereign way, God does what he does through means. God doesn't just, in all cases, arbitrarily intervene in human affairs, but he works through means to accomplish his end. And in the case of prayer, prayer is one of those means. Witnessing is one of those means. Oh, it's true. God can convert anybody he chooses. And he does convert who he chooses. But the way he does it is through the vehicle of human testimony, and God has also chosen the vehicle. You see how it operates. So it's proper to say, if God is going to save John Smith, God will save John Smith. But it is not proper to say, God will save John Smith apart from your testimony to John Smith if God is determined, foreordained, to save John Smith through your testimony. Understand how it operates. It goes together. God ordains the whole sequence. And so when you apply that to prayer, that's why it can say in James, as as James does say, you have not because you ask not. See, you don't get it because you don't ask for it. You ask for it, you get it. Why is that? Because God has ordained the means as well as the ends. And so when he ordains an answer to prayer, he ordains that that answer be obtained through the means of human prayer. And that's what we have here. You say, well, God would have saved Peter anyway. Not quite right to put the question that way. God determined to save Peter, but the hitch in the logic is the word anyway. God had determined to save Peter, but the way in which God had determined to save Peter was in response to the prayers of the Christians who were praying. And so we have here a great lesson about the importance of prayer. Not only that, we have a lesson about the nature of prayer. Notice verse 5. It really tells us a great deal about how we should pray. You see, it says in James, in the fifth chapter, verse 16, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now, here's an example of what effectual fervent prayer is. Prayer is the vehicle. This now tells us the kind of vehicle, the kind of prayer that God uses. That verse says the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Now, there are four points to that. It's worth thinking about them. First of all, they were praying to God. That's the aim of prayer. He's the one you address it to. Someone would say, oh, well, that's hardly worthy of mentioning because, after all, aren't all prayers addressed to God? To whom else would you pray? Well, no, all prayers are not addressed to God. A person might say, well, yeah, I can understand that the heathen, the pagans, somewhere out in the jungle or on a remote island, tribal people might be praying to sticks and stones and idols and that sort of thing. I can understand that. But no, that's not what I'm talking about. Someone else will say, well, yes, and some branches of the church pray to saints, not necessarily to God, but that's not what I'm talking about either. I'm talking about normal prayers given by supposed Christian people in Christian assemblies. I think many, many of them are not really offered to God, and perhaps that's true of our own prayers as well. I think of the story from some years back concerns a minister in Boston who was known for his eloquence and who prayed on one occasion, a time in the past when such things were still reported in the papers, and was reported in the Boston paper the next day after that Sunday service that this was the most eloquent prayer ever offered to a Boston audience. 
I think there are a lot of prayers like that, only perhaps they're not always so eloquent. They're prayers that are offered to the congregation. Ministers pray in a way that they hope will please the people. They're not really prayers offered to God. And sometimes that's true of our prayers as well. It's harder to think of that, especially when we pray alone, because we're obviously not praying to impress other people. But, you know, we sometimes rush into prayer and rush out of prayer, and we never really, if we search our own hearts, pause to be conscious that we really are praying to the great almighty God of the universe. One of the best books I've ever read about prayer is a book by Reuben Torrey called The Power of Prayer, and he tells about his own experiences, his prayer in it, and he says how this transformed his own prayer life. I want to read you just a little bit of what he says. The day came when I realized what real prayer meant, realized that prayer was having an audience with God, actually coming into the presence of God and asking and getting things from him. And the realization of that fact transformed my prayer life. Before that, prayer had been a mere duty and sometimes a very irksome duty. From that time on, prayer has been not merely a duty, but a privilege, one of the most highly esteemed privileges of life. Before that, the thought I had was, how much time must I spend in prayer? The thought that now possesses me is, how much time may I spend in prayer without neglecting the other privileges and duties of life? Well, if we're to study verse 5 or what it teaches about prayer, certainly that's the first thing. Prayer, real prayer. Prayer is prayer that is to God the Father. Now, secondly, it tells us who prayed. And here the point is that the prayer was by the church. See, what is involved in this particular example of prayer is not just individual prayer, important as that may be, but what we would call united prayer by Christian people, meeting together in harmony. There's a real value in that. The value, of course, is in the harmony that we are meeting together as Christian people and praying together. Sometimes we think of it numerically, I guess because we Americans always think in terms of quantity rather than quality. We think, well, if one prayer is good, two prayers is better. If ten prayers might get what we want, well, let's be sure we get what we want and get 20 people praying. We think of all-night vigils, not because it's an example of the fervency of prayer, but because, well, if you pray all night, you get more prayers in that way. So we think quantitatively. It's not that, you see. It's united prayer, where the minds and hearts of the people of God are together bent upon this thing. That's what we have here. And then the third thing that we're told about their prayer Not only that it was to God and it was by the church as Christians prayed collectively, we're told that it was earnest prayer. Earnestly they were praying. Now we find out what that meant later on because Peter is released in the middle of the night when everyone is sleeping. And when he goes to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, everyone is there praying. So apparently they're having an all-night prayer meeting. He didn't go out and wander around the streets in those days at night, so they probably collected before dark. They began to pray. It's the middle of the night. They're still praying. And if Peter hadn't come, they would have gone on praying until morning. That's fervent prayer, something we know very little of today. Well, in certain branches of the church, people practice this in certain areas of the world, especially where there's persecution, sometimes in places where There's revival. People understand this kind of prayer, but we understand very little of it today. Perhaps there's one reason why the church in America is so weak. Numerically strong, oh yes, we're big on numbers, but not strong at heart, not spiritually strong. 
It is interesting, those who have studied such things tell us that there has never been a period of great revival in the church that's not been preceded by strong, fervent, united prayer by Christian people. I'm not to start small, two or three getting together and say, well, let's begin to pray that God will send his spirit, visit us, and send a revival in our time. Begin small, but it grows until you have a core of people whose minds are united and whose hearts are united to pray for just such a thing. It's out of that the revivals come. At any rate, here, it was out of that that God delivered Peter. And then there's the fourth thing. Not only did they pray to God, and it was the church that was praying to God, and not only was it fervent, it was specific because they were praying to God for Peter. It says it very specifically. It doesn't hurt to be specific in your prayers. We know, of course, that sometimes we can pray wrongly. You don't receive, says James, sometimes because you ask amiss. We can ask amiss, especially when we pray for ourselves, something that we want. We tend to get our selfishness mixed up in it. I have a much better chance of not praying amiss when we pray for someone else. We pray for spiritual things are always better than when we're praying for physical things. But here they were praying for a physical thing, for his physical deliverance, and God did answer. But it was a specific prayer. You see, they knew what they were asking God for. They were asking God to deliver Peter and That is the way they prayed. Now, all of that is a great example of prayer, isn't it? You look at that, you see this church gathered together, praying all night, fervently to God for Peter. You say to yourself, why, what a marvelous example of prayer. And yet the irony of the story is that although it was a great example of prayer, it was nevertheless, obviously, prayer in which they didn't quite have faith. In other words, it was, let's say it, it was unbelieving prayer, because when Peter was delivered and he came and he knocked at the door, nobody in that prayer meeting believed that it was Peter. That's really funny, you see. Peter came in the middle of the night to the door and he knocked on it. I'm sure you can understand this because you've all been in prayer meetings, you know how it is. Everybody is praying and they're trying to concentrate, and then there's always something to disrupt you. Sometimes the telephone rings, and then you try to keep the meeting going, whoever's praying keeps praying, and everybody else tries to concentrate, but everybody's aware that the phone is ringing, and you're wondering who's going to get up to answer that phone or the doorbell or whatever it may be. Well, that's what this was like. And we're all there praying, oh, Lord, please deliver Peter. We need Peter. We don't want Peter to be executed the way James was executed. Oh, Lord, please say, knock, knock, knock. Oh, Lord, please say, Peter, please say, Peter, knock, knock, knock. And they begin to look around. I guess Mary, she owned the house. I guess she looked up, and over there in the edge of the crowd was a servant girl. Her name was Rhoda, and sort of with a sign, she indicated to Rhoda that Rhoda should go to the door. And so Rhoda did, and she got up and trotted off to the door. And doesn't tell exactly how she handled this. It might have been a door with a peephole in it. Eventually, Rhoda went to the door, and she looked through the peephole, if that's what it was, or a little trap door she opened, or maybe the top part of the door that she opened, probably just a hole, and there she saw Peter. I wasn't quite sure it was Peter at first, but she recognized him. She heard his voice. She knew it was Peter. And so she turned around, went back, and and she interrupted the prayer meeting. Now, one thing you must not do, especially if you're a servant girl, is interrupt a prayer meeting, especially when people are praying for such an important thing as God's delivering the apostle, the great apostle Peter. But you see, she had a message that was worth telling. And so she went and she said to them, Peter is at the door. Well, you ever hear anything so crazy in your life? 
Why would we be praying for God to deliver Peter from prison if Peter was at the door? They said to her exactly what she deserved. You are out of your mind. I don't know who you saw out there, but you're out of your mind. And besides that, you're interrupting our prayer meeting. Now go sit down over there in the corner and let us pray. She kept insisting that it was so. No, no, she says, Peter, I know Peter. I know Peter as well as you. It's Peter. After all, I'm the one that went to the door. Peter's there. Well, she obviously saw something. And so they said, he must already be executed. He's dead. It's his ghost. They said, it's his angel. Must be his angel, they said. You see, they did not believe that God was going to deliver Peter. There's only one problem with that theory, and the problem with the theory was that Peter kept on knocking. Now, I know if you have a seance, I never participated in a seance, but sometimes there's a phenomenon of spirit rapping. I think what that probably is, is the person who conducts the seance banging on the bottom of the table. (laughs) But the spirits are supposed to rap. At any rate, there might be such a thing, but this was no spirit rapping. This was Peter knocking. And Peter didn't knock like a ghost, especially after he had been kept waiting outside and being the kind of impatient person he was. I imagine by this time he was banging on the door pretty directly. Come on now, it's time for you to break up the prayer meeting and let me in. And so when they heard the knocking and the knocking and the knocking, finally they said, well, you know, maybe there's something to it. After all, let's go see who it is. So they went to the door, and sure enough, it was Peter. You know, we do a lot of praying like that. I've sometimes said that the way we protect ourselves in our prayers, when we pray for specific things, we know we should, we've been told we should, but the way we protect ourselves is to always tack on the end of our prayers, if it be thy will. Because you see, if God doesn't do it, we understand perfectly well why he didn't do it. It wasn't his will. And so that's all right. You see, it gets us off, though. We don't have to be embarrassed. As long as we have said at the end of our prayer, if it be thy will. And that is just our form of doing what they were doing. It's our form of telling Rhoda, you must be out of your mind. You know, God's just not going to do it. I heard a story years ago of a couple who had a nice house, but the view in their house was blocked by a mountain. And they were reading in the big hill, I guess, actually. They were reading in the Bible that if two on earth agree about anything, you pray and it'll be done. You say to this mountain, be removed, be cast into the sea, and it'll be removed. So they said, let's just do that. So they spent the night praying that God would move the mountain. And they got up in the morning and they went to the window and they drew the curtains back and it was still there. And the husband said, I knew it would be there. He wasn't praying in faith, didn't expect God to answer the prayer request. That's the way we pray. I wish more of us had the spirit of Luther. It's really my favorite story about prayer. Luther had a great friend, Frederick Myconius, and in the year 1540, Myconius got sick, and everybody thought he was going to die. He may well have died. He sent a farewell note to Luther, written with a trembling hand, a note that still exists. And it said goodbye to Luther, that he was dying, and Luther would have to carry on the rest of the work of the Reformation without Iconius. Well, Luther, Luther wasn't about to receive that kind of news. He wrote back to Myconius and said, I forbid you to die. I'm praying for your recovery. This is my will, said Luther, and may my will be done, because I don't want my own glory, but only the glory of God in the Reformation. Well, when the note from Luther got back to Myconius, Myconius was so sick, so near death, he couldn't even speak. had to be read to him, I forbid you to die. (laughs) 
Well, we hear words like that and we say, oh, you know, we couldn't pray like that. That's Luther. We wouldn't do that. How bold, how arrogant that must be. Well, it wasn't. It was of God because when that was written to Myconius, Myconius got well. He recovered completely, lived six more years, and he survived Luther himself by two months. You see, there are times when we really don't know how to pray, and we have to say, Lord, teach us to pray. There are times when we're very uncertain in prayer, and we have to say, I really don't know if this is your will or not. And so we only pray that your will might be done. But there are times when we need to be bold in prayer, when we need to really speak up and and see our prayers answered. Shouldn't we be encouraged even by a story like this? Here is prayer done in the right way, but faulty prayer, unbelieving prayer, and yet God answered it, didn't he? He didn't even believe that God was going to deliver Peter, and yet God delivered him in response to the prayer. That's what it's teaching. And if a prayer like that is effective, well, then there's hope for us. Our prayers can be effective too. The question is, do we really pray? Do we pray to God? Do we pray with others? Do we pray fervently? And do we have specifics in mind? Let's pray. Oh, our Father, even in a time like this, as we come to the end of a service, and end in prayer, because we always end our services in prayer, we can do it in a routine way, not recognizing that it is really to you that we come, and that as we come, we come with specifics in mind, and wish to pray fervently, and together, in an assembly such as this, we do ask that your word might bear fruit. You've said that it pleases you to do that, so we can pray boldly for that. You've even said that your word will not return unto you void, and so we pray that it will not return unto you void. Now, as a result of this study, and this time that we have spent together, and this prayer, Father, do bless it, and Bless it in your own way, but above all, certainly in the way that this chapter intends, that we might be encouraged in our own prayer lives. So become men and women of prayer. That prayer for us becomes no longer a routine matter, but the very essence of life in which we mere human beings, and sinful at that, pour out our hearts before you. And because of who you are, not who we are, but because of who you are, find as we live our lives that those prayers are answered and glorious brought to our great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You're listening to the Bible Study Hour with the Bible teaching of Dr. James Boyce, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview, drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by. We seek to provide Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Alliance Broadcasting includes the Bible Study Hour with Dr. James Boyce, Every Last Word with Bible Teacher Dr. Philip Riken, God's Living Word with Pastor the Reverend Richard Phillips, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring Donald Barnhouse. For more information on the Alliance, including a free introductory package for first-time callers, 
or to make a contribution, please call toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Again, that's 1-800-488-1888. You can also write the Alliance at Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at AllianceNet.org. For Canadian gifts, mail those to 237 Rouge Hills Drive, Scarborough, Ontario, M1C2Y9. Ask for your free resource catalog featuring books, audio, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to the Bible Study Hour.